Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning, and welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. I'm doing a series of messages on Sunday morning from now to Easter on the Messiah's resurrection from Old Testament passages. And so last week, we went back to the earliest one we could, and that was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promise of the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent. And so today we're in the book of Job, Job 19. We have this wonderful passage about the fact that he knows his Redeemer is living. You know, I, I think that the need of a Savior, the need of a Redeemer, has been the story of human history. We went all the way back to Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve. And since that time till now, people have been looking for someone to help them, someone to deliver them, someone who could promise life to them. Sometimes the pagans do it uh, in their own rather false way, but worshiping their idols or whatever. Cults do it by kind of inventing their own Messiah. Idolaters and uh, worshiping their idols or even the spiritists who worship the spirits who are really demons floating around in, in this world. There's lots of different ways. Christianity, on the other hand, has a savior, not just from the disappointments of life, because we have those and we have our success and failure. We have our brokenness uh, in this world. We even have physical ailments and things to deal with. But we have a Savior who can deliver us from sin and from judgment. And isn't that the final thing that we need? We need that. And so we find such a Savior all the way back to Genesis and here in the book of Job, which is a very unique book. And here is a man suffering like few people have ever suffered. And yet, what is his concern? I need a Redeemer so I know where I'm going when I die. That was what Job is saying in our text. Now, let me say, this, this great book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. It comes in the middle of the Bible, you know, with the, with the other poetical books. But Job lived in the days of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He lived long before Moses. And so before Moses ever wrote Genesis, Job lived, and somebody wrote down these words, if it were not Job himself, afterwards. And so we have other good men like Noah and Abraham who lived before Moses also, lived back in those days when they didn't have a Bible to read, but somehow Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know I have a Redeemer, and I know that he will stand in the latter day on the earth. As a matter of fact, so will I. How did Job know that? Because God, in his way, revealed these things to these great men, and later he wrote them down for us, of course, in the, in the Bible itself. Now, now, Job was hurting, as I said. As a matter of fact, we'll see in the passage, I think Job realizes that uh, his skin is about to be destroyed. Worms are about to eat him, and he thinks he's going to die. But if he does, fine. What he needs is everlasting life. He needs life after death as all of us, of course, do. I want you to, to go back to chapter 1. Hold your place here, and let me uh, just remind you of who Job is and what is happening to him. Job 1 and verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, 
And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Now skip over to uh, verse 6 or down to verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Let me tell you, folks, we have an enemy, a lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that is he has uh, is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I'll stop there. So what has happened? God allows Satan or uh, Job to go through this time of torment and time of, of, of testing, brought on by Satan himself, of course, and yet he will say throughout, uh, God gives and God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he comes right down to our passage, this great passage at the end of the book. And uh, here he says some amazing things. He's going to talk about a book, right, in verse 23, uh, a book that he has. He's going to talk about a redeemer. He knows something about a redeemer. And he's going to talk about the end times, at the end of time when the redeemer stands on the earth. And he says, in my flesh, I'll be resurrected and stand there too. These are pretty amazing words when you think, that they come from such an early time, long before even Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when I bring you this message this morning, you have to understand that we read the Bible with full knowledge of a completed scripture. We see the whole picture from beginning to end, and God has given us his word and we can see in these words things maybe that Job himself could not see and understand, but somehow he knows them. And of course, that's by the inspiration of the Spirit. This book is part of the Word of God where the, the Holy Spirit inspired him or whoever wrote it afterwards to write these things down in a true, real way. So I want you to notice as we go to these verses that uh, I'm going to divide them into two parts the desire of the human heart, and the answer of the human heart. Now, I have to extend my introduction a little ways. So let me, let me give you some background and a picture, especially of this word redeemer, that we all should have. And if we have this background, I think it will bring to light a lot of what Job says in these few verses. The word redeemer is unique. It's used 18 times in the Old Testament. 59 times you have the verb form to redeem something, mostly, of course, in the Mosaic Law. You have the word redemption 12 times. 
A redeemer comes from the word goel, G-O-E-L, we usually spell it, goel, which means to buy something back, to redeem something. And one expression we have of this in the Old Testament is a kinsman redeemer. In other words, under the law, if you had a relative, a kinsman, who could come and help you in a certain situation, he was called a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. In other words, here are five ways that your relative or your kinsman could help you. He could redeem a relative's property. If you lost your property, someone in your family could come and buy your property back for you. Excuse me, he could avenge a relative's death. If uh, there was question about the death, this man could avenge the death. He could marry a lost relative's wife and raise up children to his lost relative's name. It's called the Leverite Law and so forth. We see that happening. He could buy a relative out of slavery. Now, slavery in the Old Testament was different than what we think of it today, but basically uh, someone uh, uh, sells himself to uh, an employer to work off a debt, and that's how that worked. And you could buy that debt and uh, redeem your relative back. And lastly, you could defend a relative in a lawsuit. So to have a redeemer who is a kinsman, someone out of your family that would come and help you in any of those circumstances was a great thing. Now, let me broaden that picture a little bit further. God owns the earth. Is that a surprise to you? <laughs> this earth belongs to God. In Leviticus 25, which is the main chapter, by the way, about redeemers, in Leviticus 25, God said, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, and you are strangers and sojourners on it. He not only said that, but in Psalm 50, he said, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine. I don't need anything from you. I have the whole world, and it all belongs to me. Now, interestingly, in, a, in the biblical picture, God let Adam and Eve live on his land, and he gave them control over his land, and you know what they did? They forfeited it to a usurper called Satan and gave up their right to the land. Later, God will lend his land to Israel, and what we have about a Redeemer largely comes from this picture of the Old Testament. So they go into the land, and God brings 12 tribes into the land, and he divides his land up and says, here's for your tribe, here's for your tribe, here's for yours. And within each tribe, every family got a lot of land. Here's your parcel, here's your parcel, here's your parcel. Now that land belonged to that family forever. It cannot change. And so what God did, he made provision that if one of these things happens to you, for example, suppose you had to sell your land to pay a debt. Every 50th year, the land comes back to you. It's called the year of Jubilee. And every 50th year, no matter what the debt is, no matter where people are, the original land goes back to that family and those people. Not bad, huh? Uh, so that it stays in the family forever. Now, a kinsman redeemer could get the land, land back early for you. Suppose you had 40 years to go, 
and you had a debt that had to be paid off, and there's no way you could do it. Your kinsman could come and say, I will pay the debt, and the land will go back to them. And I will be the kinsman redeemer for that. We have a beautiful picture of that in the book of Ruth. Naomi had to give up her land, but her husband died. And then Ruth had married into that family. Her husband died. They come back into Israel, and they have no land. And what happens? Boaz says, I will redeem the land for you. And he redeems the land for Naomi's sake, and he marries Ruth to raise up children to her dead husband. He becomes a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer for both of them. Now, a kinsman redeemer had to have two abilities. Number one, he had to be able to pay, and Boaz could pay. And obviously, if you're going to get someone out of debt, you have to have the ability to do that. And secondly, you had to have the power to maintain the land, and often that meant there's a usurper on the land. Just as I said with Adam and Eve, the usurper on the earth right now is Satan himself. But in those days, a usurper might be on the land, so you have to have the power to kick him out and take the land back to the proper owner. Now, also, and this is, I think, amazing in the Scripture, they sealed every one of these agreements with a sealed book perhaps a seven-sealed book, a scroll, actually, that on the inside of the scroll, it had the name of the original owners and who redeemed it, and on the outside, it had seals and some scribed on the outside to tell you what was in the scroll. And so, Sometimes this redeemer had to go away and be gone for a long time. He comes back and he says, the land is mine. And somebody says, no, it's not. And he says, let's open the seven sealed book and we'll see whose name is inside. And when that book was open, there's the original owners and there's the redeemer. And they said, yep, the land belongs to them. Now that happened at the Jubilee year. Uh, you know, anyway, the land goes back to the original owner, whoever is named written in this book. Let me read you this little paragraph from Renald Showers when he says this about this. The possibility of someone challenging the right of tenant possession would be especially strong in a situation where the kinsman redeemer did not take actual possession of the land for a long time after he had paid the redemption price because of circumstances removed him from the location, and usurpers occupied and used that land during his absence. That kind of situation would require that the kinsman redeemer to open and read the sealed scroll deed as irrefutable evidence of his right to the possession of the land. Do you remember the book of Revelation, don't you? When I say seven-sealed book, you're already thinking that. And what is Jesus going to do? He's been gone for a long time. He's going to come back and he's going to say, this land is mine. And the usurper is going to say, no, it's mine. And he will say, well, let's peel the seals off of this book and see whose name is inside. And then he's going to eject the usurper uh, from his land. So that's going to happen. And so Jesus Christ, folks, is our kinsman redeemer. And in a very unique way, Job is even seeing that from his vantage point so many years ago that there is a Redeemer who will stand in the latter day upon the earth, and I will stand there with him. The price has been paid. Was he able to pay the price? What was the price that he paid? His own blood on the cross of Calvary to deliver us from the usurper. Does he have the power to 
to expel the usurper, that's what the tribulation period is all about. When that book is open and his name is on that sealed book, then uh, he will uh, kick that usurper off the land and then he will live in it for a thousand years with us that he's promised uh, this land to. So it's a great story, but you see the, 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 the picture in Israel and you see this picture in the whole Bible too. Now, when we come back to our verses here, these wonderful verses, again, Job is using that kind of language to describe his hope in the resurrection, his hope in the resurrection of the Redeemer and his hope in, the, in his own resurrection when he dies. So I say, first of all, we begin in verse 23 that here is the desire of his heart. He wants to make sure that his life is secure. He wants to make sure that his fate or soul is secure, that he's going to be there too at the end of those days, and he'll be part of those that are redeemed. So verse 23 says, oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, first of all, Job, I got good news for you. We're reading about them in our book. <laughs> they are inscribed in a book, and they're in God's Word, and uh, we even have that. But more than that, he's referring, I think, to a book in the end time. He's referring to a scroll that has to be opened. Will his name be in that book? Now, I don't have to tell you that in the Bible there is a book of life, right? Even in the book of Philippians, Here's what Paul said, I urge you, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, and then he says this, whose names are in the book of life. Is your name in the book of life? If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your name has been put in that book, that book that will be there at the white throne judgment, will your name be in the book of life? And Job is saying, I want my name in that book, not just any old book. I want my name in that book, and I, I hope that it's inscribed there. Now, notice with me also, uh, notice that I say in verse 24 that it's preserved forever. Well, well let, let, me, let me say first of all, I, I wanted to read this verse. Revelation 5.9, Job is saying, I hope that I'm there. And here's what we know from the book of Revelation. In, in chapter 4, John is crying because there's a seven-sealed book and no one's worthy to open it. There's no kinsman redeemer to open the book. And what we find is that this one comes and he takes the book out of the Father's hand and he says, this is my book. And he's described as a lamb who is slain and then as a lion of the tribe of Judah, which means he has the right or he has the ability to pay for it because he's the lamb that was slain. And he has the ability to, to eject the usurper because he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so we find as soon as that is made known in Revelation chapter 5, that verses 9 and 10, all of those people who will be there at that time say, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Did you see that word redeemed? Our Redeemer is there. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, 
You have made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign on the earth. We will reign in our land. And so Job says, I want to be part of that group. I want, I want my name to be in that, in that book. Now, secondly, I say here, he realizes that he wants that to be forever and not just temporarily. So notice verse 24, that they were, in, I wish my words again, were engraved on a rock. Well, maybe, you know, parchment isn't enough. A scroll, I want it, I want it engraved on a rock. That'll last longer. With an iron pen and lead forever. Engraved on a rock, something that is permanent, more permanent than a scroll. And I want somebody to take an iron pen and, and I want them to chip it all out and, and make, this, uh, make my name engraved on that rock forever. As a matter of fact, when he says, uh, with, an I, uh, with an iron pen and lead, some say that uh, what happened in those days is that they would engrave things on a stone with a, with a chisel, and then in the grooves that the chisel makes for letters, they would actually pour hot lead into those letters, and it would harden so that what is engraved is engraved not only with the chisel, but also with lead embedded in it, and boy, that was there permanently. You didn't remove that. And so when Job says this, he's saying, that's what I want. I, I want my name engraved, and I want it engraved with a chisel on a rock and lead poured into it so that never can it change. I ask you, is your name in the book of life that can never be changed, in the Lamb's book of life that no one can remove at all forever? And I think Job kind of sees that. I couldn't help but think, that God engraved something on stone. Remember what it was? It was the Ten Commandments. You remember that? So I, I turn back to the book of Exodus, and, and in Exodus 31, the first time he does it with Moses, it says this, When he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. I think that's better than a chisel and lead, if you ask me, written with the finger of God. Now, he's making promises to his people, the Jewish people, who will be there at the end time, and they will receive these promises. But here's the representation of it. Here are the Ten Commandments. And so the story is, of course, that Moses came down from the mountain, and he's carrying these, these uh, tablets chiseled by God himself, and he sees the people worshiping the golden calf, and he's upset, and he throws that down, and he breaks it. Remember that? So in chapter 34, three chapters later, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tables of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. And so he does it again. Graven on these stones. I think that's a great thing. So again, the question is, is your name graven there? When we get to heaven, called the New Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21, verse 27 says this, there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. If God engraves your name in that book 
and your name is in the Lamb's book of life, nothing can take it away. It's more secure than a chisel with lead poured in, and it's more uh, sure than stones cut out by God's finger. This is the Lamb's book of life. So the desire of the human heart. But secondly, there's the answer to the human heart, and that brings us to these great statements where he says in verse 25, so I know that my Redeemer lives. There's a grammatical tool here that is used both in Greek and in Hebrew, and it is that the first letter in a sentence is called emphatic, and the first letter here in the sentence is the letter I, is the word I. I know. I know this. He says it with all confidence. I know that I have a Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives. Imagine Job before before a Bible was ever written, before Moses ever wrote his books or any of the prophets ever wrote theirs, or ever there was a New Testament. As a matter of fact, thousands of years before Jesus ever came, I know that my Redeemer lives. Where does he get such, such knowledge and such confidence? Enoch had it. Noah had it. Abraham had it. These men, these men long ago walked by faith, right, according to Hebrews 11. They had faith in these things. And Job has it also. Now, I say it in three ways. The answer to the human heart is that there is a kinsman redeemer. I know that my redeemer lives. He is our kinsman, folks. Jesus Christ had to become a man. He loved to call himself the son of man. That was his favorite expression of his favorite title. He's the son of man because he's your kinsman. When we go back to those early things in, in the Scripture, uh, when, he, when John the Baptist was about to be born, and Zechariah, his father, said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Listen to that word. He's redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In other words, he's saying, Our Redeemer is one of us. He's a kinsman from the house of David. And as he spoke by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. But let's make it broader than that. You say, well, I'm not a Jew and I'm not of the house of David. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. Let me ask you, how many of you here have flesh and blood? Most of you look like you do. You have flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus himself, Likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We have a kinsman redeemer who became a man. The son of God becomes a son of man. And therefore he has the ability to redeem us. And not only that, to reject the usurper, right, which he's going to do, who holds us in his power. And so there is a human kinsman redeemer. And not only that, he says, I know that he lives. I know that by his resurrection, uh, he will stand in the latter days. In other words, he won't be gone. It's not that there will be no one there. Remember again John weeping in Revelation 5. He's weeping because no one is there to open the book. And then 
he sees the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and the lion of the tribe of Judah who goes to the father's hand and says, here, I'll take that. And he takes that book and uh, then we find that praise that we read about, you are worthy to redeem us by your blood. And you know what we find in Revelation chapter 6? He peels the first seal off. Then he peels the second seal and the third seal until the whole book is open. And whose name to the rightful, the rightful owner of the land is there? His name. And those he has given the earth to. And that's what we find as a kinsman redeemer. And, and Job looks ahead and says, I know that in the last day when it's all said and done, he will be there. The scroll will be opened. Here's what Jesus said to John on the Isle of Patmos. He, he says to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Don't be afraid. If your name's in the book of life, your Redeemer lives. And he lives forever. And he will be there in the latter day upon the earth. And so we have a kinsman redeemer. And secondly, who redeems us from destruction. So verse 26, after he makes that great statement, he says, and after my skin is destroyed, or you might have worms destroy this body, this I know, in my flesh I will see God. I think Job uh, realized that he was about to die. I think he thought he was going to die. And that's okay. I've, I've suffered all of this. I have to die sometime, and this may be my day, but that doesn't bother me so much. I have a Redeemer who lives, and I will be there too. Can you die with the same confidence? Can you die with that kind of confidence? And I've put a lot of uh, bodies in the ground, folks, but there's nothing like seeing a, a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ with the confidence that even facing death, it's going to live forever. That's a great thing. So my skin may be destroyed or worms may eat this skin. And you know what? We realize that we've given ourselves away to Satan. Adam and Eve did it, and you and I have done it. And we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God too. And Satan is our spiritual father, as we have learned, we learned last week. He's our spiritual father until we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ by faith. And then he becomes our spiritual father. But we've forfeited our inheritance as sinners. And our name will not be in that book unless we come to our Redeemer by faith. But I think he realizes when he says, uh, in my flesh I will see God. I will see him. I will have to face him. And let me say this to you, whether you are lost or saved, you will face God. If you're a believer, you will by faith in the first resurrection, you will see God in your flesh. And if you are not a believer, you will see God in the second resurrection, which is the resurrection unto uh, condemnation. But you will see God. So the question is, how are you going to stand there in God's presence? Now, notice one other thing uh, from verse 26. He says, in my flesh I will see God. Not only does my Redeemer live forever by his resurrection, 
in my flesh, I will live. In my flesh, I'll be resurrected. Every one of us will be resurrected back to life to live forever, either in heaven or in hell. But if you're a believer, you'll partake in the first resurrection and stand in your flesh with your body resurrected before God. I think that's a great statement. I love it. So Hebrews 9, 27 says, It's appointed for men to die once. After this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, but to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So there's a kinsman redeemer, and he redeems us from destruction. And lastly, he does that in the day of judgment, whom I shall see for myself and not another. Judgment day is coming. When we go to that white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, it says this, I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. Even at that judgment before God, the final line is, is your name in the book of life or is it not? And at that white throne judgment where sinners are brought before God, they'll look over there and their name is not there. Their name is not in that book of life. And he will say, depart from me, you that work iniquity, I never knew you. Their name could have been in the book of life. All they had to do is accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Their name is there engraved forever in that book of life. Well, I will see for myself. You've got to stand there alone. You don't stand there with somebody else. You don't, you don't stand there uh, blaming somebody else while you're there. You have to stand before God. And not another. I like these kinds of verses. In Isaiah 49, he said, All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob. Wouldn't it be good to stand there one day and the Lord Jesus Christ says, He's mine, she's mine. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the kinsman Redeemer that paid the price. And that, her name or his name is in my book. You remember Titus 2.14 where Paul wrote and said, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us. There's that word again. He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify unto himself his own special people, peculiar people in the old version, who are zealous of good works. You stand there as his people, his peculiar, his special people. And then the way we have it in this version is, oh, how my heart yearns within me. I think Job was saying, I can't wait to be there and praise my God forever. And praise the Lord Jesus Christ for the fact that he's my redeemer. He lives forever and I will live forever with him. My heart yearns within me to be able to do that. Psalm 19, that great psalm about creation said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. May I praise you and praise you forever. Well, it's a great passage of Scripture. It's short, but it's powerful. And Job, hundreds of years before the Bible was even written, he knew that his Redeemer would live forever and that he would live with him. And so I ask you, shouldn't you know that? 
Shouldn't you know also that your Redeemer lives and that you will live with him forever? You'll stand before your God. You'll stand before your Creator one day. And the only question is, is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? Is it in that book inscribed by the finger of God in that book that no one can take away? I hope that you are there and that your name is there. I want you now to stand with me, if you will, as we think about these great words from Job. And I want us to sing a song in a minute, but first go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts in the way each of us need. Let's pray together. Now, Father, what wonderful words we read from this old ancient book from this great man of God who knew that his Redeemer would live forever and that he also would stand with him in the latter days. Father, what a blessing it is to us to know that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day and that he lives now forever and that we can live with him in that city forever and that our names are in his book and written and inscribed there. So, Father, we thank you for that, and we praise you. And our heart yearns within us to be able to praise you forever for this wonderful blessing. Father, there are many in this world today where the, the gospel has been preached around the world and is being preached today, and many don't know you as Savior, have never given their heart to you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone maybe here or within the sound of my voice or somewhere hearing the preaching of, of your word, that they would give their heart to you by asking you to forgive them of their sins and asking the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior. May that happen today. May it happen now. And I pray, Father, that uh, this confidence and this blessing would be theirs. Now bless us as we sing and we think about these things and apply them to our hearts. Move us in the way that we need, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our invitation as we sing is open. As we sing, I'm at the front. You can meet me there, or when other people are leaving at the close of our service, come and say, I need to get this thing right with the Lord. You do what the Lord wants you to do today. Gordon will come and lead us in this song.